He also wanted me to let you know that he's really very well known for his humility. So please give a big hand for RT. <laughs> Can we just pray for RT, please? Because it's quite a, a busy schedule for him. So, so can we just stretch out hands? With and... my humility, we need uh -oh. to pray. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so humble, I have to pray about it. You see. Am I going to pray for you or not? Please. Okay. <laughs> oh, I really need it now. Father God, we just want to thank you so much for RT. And indeed for Louise, those of us who know her, and we thank you for the two of them. And we thank you for their love to, for Detling and for this conference and for their commitment to this conference. And I just pray now, Holy Spirit, for a fresh anointing for him this morning. Lord, that you'd fill him up where he's given out so much. And Lord, may his words reach out to each one of us. May each one of us hear you speaking through him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yours too. Okay. Thank you, Mary Jane. We are committed to Detling. I said to John Paul and to Jackie Pullinger, we were lucky to have breakfast with her before she had to move on. I said of, and I can only say because he's not here. Uh, uh, it happens that Eric has got to be in another venue this morning, so I can say this about him. Eric Delve is pure gold. And there's not many people I would say that about. As for that introduction, the introduction, it reminds me of a friend of mine from Pennsylvania who heard himself being introduced to this large sales gathering as the man from Texas who had made $200 million in oil, and he was going to tell how he did it. But when he heard the introduction, he panicked. He thought, what am I going to do? Well, he said to himself, there's only one thing to do, and that's to stand up and tell these people the truth. He said, folks, before I get into my talk, there are one or two discrepancies in the introduction. First, I'm not from Texas. I'm from Pennsylvania. Second, the money was not in oil. It was in coal. Third, the figure was not $200 million. It was $200,000. Fourth, it wasn't me. It was my brother. <laughs> Fifth, he didn't make it. He lost it. My favorite story about introductions, did you hear about these two Englishmen, two Irishmen, two Scotsmen, and two Welshmen that were marooned on this island in the South Pacific and were discovered two years later? The two Welshmen had formed a choir and were singing. The two Scotsmen had formed a bank 
and were trading shells with each other. The two Irishmen had killed each other off in a fight. The two Englishmen were waiting to be introduced. Fun time over. Now, <laughs> open your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. And I'll read verses 1 and 13. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. May we bow together for a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to come in, move in alongside and if possible, take full charge. Lord, we'd love that. Overrule every weakness that I have, and you know you have your work cut out for you there. And I pray for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus to be upon every mind, every heart, that our perception will be what you have in mind, and upon my tongue that I will be cleansed and say only what you want said, nothing you don't want said. And may this be a life-changing moment and bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Just to remind you of the contrast between yesterday's man and tomorrow's man. Yesterday's man still wore the crown. He had the following. He had the prestige. He had the mailing lists. He had everything you would want, but he lost, he forfeited the anointing. It had lifted from him. And he carried on as king, even though he was now clearly rejected by God, says so. He was still king for another 20 years. And nobody knew that the anointing had lifted from him. Only Samuel knew that. Tomorrow's man, typified by David. No anointing, uh, sorry, no crown, no mailing list, no platform, no following, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he was given what I can only call a secret anointing because only 10 people knew. Samuel knew it, Jesse knew it, the sons knew it. It was a secret anointing. Nobody else would know about this for years. And perhaps I speak to you today 
as today's man, today's woman. You are waiting for your time to come. Because to be tomorrow's man, tomorrow's woman can be very painful. And you cry out, how long, how long, how long, how long? Victor Hugo once said, like the trampling of a mighty army, so is the force of an idea whose time has come. And if I could paraphrase that, like the trampling of a mighty army, so is the force of one's anointing whose time has come. Now here's the thing. David was given the anointing. It was a secret an anointing. It was there, but... It doesn't, doesn't follow that he was ready to be king. And the mistake we often make is when we know an anointing is on us. And we've had an extraordinary experience with God. We assume that means we're ready to go. We're ready to flow. Wrong. The truth is David wasn't ready to be king. Just because the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power doesn't mean he's ready to be king. He was able to kill Goliath, yes. But it doesn't mean he's ready to be king. Right after Saul of Tarsus was converted, he started preaching immediately. Doesn't mean he was ready to be an apostle. He would now need 14 years in Arabia. There would be a lot of preparation. And so don't make the mistake of assuming just because God has met with you powerfully and in an undoubted manner that this means you're ready to go. Big mistake. The greatest word Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones ever gave me was one day as we were talking, it was one of those throwaway comments, but I wrote it down. I haven't found it in any of his books. He looked at me and said, the worst thing that can happen to a man is to succeed before he's ready. That is what happened to King Saul. And that has happened to so many people. They have success overnight and they go up like a rocket. And then they crash. It happened to King Saul. God was going to make sure it didn't happen to David. And so, one of the evidences that you are a man, a woman after God's own heart is that you are kept from premature success. God is doing you a singular favor not to let you succeed. Now, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power when Samuel took the horn of oil and poured it on him. We might wish that Samuel had said to David, oh, by the way, David, I forgot to tell you, it will be another 20 years before you will be king. Or if only Samuel had said, oh, one more thing, David, I need to tell you, uh, the next 20 years you're going to spend running for your life, you are going to be running from King Saul just to stay alive. And this is part of your preparation. This is going to equip you for being king. If only Samuel had said, 
something like that. Just something so that David wouldn't be taken by surprise. One of the things about God's ways, and don't ask me to explain it, but he doesn't give us advance notice of one of the peculiar characteristics of himself. Isaiah discovered it right in the middle of chapter 45, out of the blue. Isaiah just stopped and said, truly, you are a God who hides yourself. If only God were to say, look, next Monday afternoon about 3 o'clock, you will notice a gradual withdrawing of the light of my countenance. I will be hiding my face from you. Or if he would only say, next Friday morning at 10 o'clock, you're going to have a major trial. You can just watch it. It'll come. No, nothing like that. No warning, no warning. And what even makes it worse is that you can be in a time of the richest fellowship and intimacy with God. And he is so real to you. And it's just wonderful. And you feel like, Nothing will ever be the same again because you have now arrived. You have discovered what God is like and He is so real. And then the next thing you know, He completely disappears. No apology, no explanation. He's just not there. And you say, Lord, what, what, what happened? Truly, you are a God who hides yourself. And so the next 20 years would be part of David's preparation. I don't care how old you are. Suppose you were to discover that it would be another 20 years before your time will come. What if you were to discover that? You'd say, I don't think I could cope with that. I would be demoralized. Well, graciously, God doesn't tell you that. He didn't tell David. And he doesn't tell us how long it will be. But in David's case, it would be another 20 years before he would be king. And keep in mind, this is one who's a man after God's own heart. Well... This anointing was an anointing David had not sought. He was tending the sheep. He had certain gifts and talents, but who would have thought that these would equip him for the kingship? He was a musician. He was a man in the wild. And the first proof of his anointing was that he killed Goliath. It came at a time when Israel was running scared. Goliath was over nine feet tall, about three meters tall. And David's anointing was simply this. He saw Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine before the living God. Everybody else saw him as a giant. David saw him as an uncircumcised Philistine. And he says, what's the matter with everybody? Don't you know that this man will fall just like that? He saw what no one else saw. It was obvious David, though, the, by the anointing, was utterly unafraid of Goliath and knew his destiny. 
Now, I want to address anyone here today who may indeed be tomorrow's man or woman, and if I were to say to you that all of you are that, it would not surprise me. God has raised up a people here. You are not here by accident. You are not hearing this word by accident. And this is a word for you because God isn't finished with you yet. And you have a gift that is unique. Nobody has what you have. And you may feel that there's no demand for what you're good at. You wait. Your time will come. And that which you thought nobody knew about, God knows about it. And as David was a found man, God found him. God will find you. He knows your name. He knows your address. He knows all that's going on. And it is part of your preparation so that when your time has come, you will be ready. And not only that, you will be able to cope with the kind of success that will bring honor and glory to God and will not go to your head and ruin you. Now, not all the points that I'm going to make about David would apply to you or to me. But there are parallels, and you can see when you say, that's me. Take, for example, the jealousy that David had from his brothers. Could it be? There are those here today. You know what it is to have sibling rivalry. And one day, Jesse asked David to go check on his brothers. And so he goes and asks the brothers who are in the battle, scared to death of Goliath, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And Eliab, the eldest, firstborn, the one who was passed over for the anointing, he is so upset. And we're told that Eliab burned with anger and says to David, why have you come down here? We know about you. We know about those few sheep that you have in the desert. I know how conceited you are. And David says, well, now what have I done? But just gives you a hint of David feeling the jealousy from his own family. And this can be a very painful thing. And you think, what's the purpose? Lord, why do I have to go through this? Why must they feel that way about me? Well, they felt that way about David. And it is, funnily as it may seem, strangely as it may seem, part of your preparation. And not only his brothers, but as we've already seen this week, his own dad, his father, Jesse, had underestimated David completely. David was not even going to be brought in to meet the great Samuel who comes to the house. David would not even known about it, except that Samuel could not sense the anointed one before him and kept saying, where are the others? And finally, Jesse went and got David, underestimated by his own father. Anybody here like that? 
underestimated by a peer or authority figure. When your own father says, you're not going to make it. Do you know what it is to want their approval more than anything in the world? Now on this, I so identify myself with David. Many years ago, I was given what I would call an anointing. Driving in my car from Palmer, Tennessee to Nashville, I was pastor of a little church near Chattanooga, and I was a student at Trevecca Nazarene University, and uh, went to school during the week, and on weekends pastored this church, and normally I'd come back on a Sunday night to, to Trevecca, but it happened one day, I came on a Monday morning. I don't have time today to go into all the details, except to say that the glory of the Lord filled the car. The person of Jesus was more real to me than any of you are right now. I entered into a rest of soul. I was given a peace. I didn't know you could have anything like that in this life. It was so wonderful. My theology changed overnight, completely changed. I thought I discovered something new. I thought I was the first since the Apostle Paul to see some of the things I was shown. A few months before, when I became pastor of that church, my grandmother bought a brand new car, 1955 Chevrolet with all the trimmings, and said, he's going to need a car. So she bought me a brand new car so I could have it to drive to Palmer, 115 miles away every weekend. A few months later, I come back home to Kentucky, thinking that my dad, my grandmother, when they hear about this experience with God and my new theology and my anointing, I thought they would be so thrilled. But when they realized that I wasn't going to be in my same old denomination, my grandmother took the car back. <laughs> and my dad says, son, you have broken with God. I said, Dad, no, no. I'm walking closer to the Lord than ever. He's never been so real to me. No, you've broken with God. And there was nothing I could do. And I, I wrecked my brain. What can I say? What can I do to make my dad see that I'm with the Lord and he's with me and, and that he's going to use me? Well, I thought of one thing that might impress him. After that experience I just described, for a period of about six months, I began to have a series of visions. I did. Visions. Open visions. And one or two of them indicated that the day would come I would have an international ministry. And I thought, Dad will like that. So I said, Dad, let me tell you one other thing. God is not only going to use me, one day I will have an international ministry. He said, when? One year from now. All right, one year from now. Would you put that in writing? Sure. So he got a sheet of paper, 
Rodel, I, R.T. Kendall, will have an international ministry one year from today. And he put the date, had me sign it. I did. Easiest thing I ever did. I thought it would be in a month. I don't know if you've ever had a vision, but they're so real, you think it's going to happen day after tomorrow. So when I said a year, I was being conservative. A year later, I wasn't even in the ministry. Five years later, I was selling vacuum cleaners door to door to make a living. Here I was named after my father's favorite preacher, and I was the blue-eyed boy in my old denomination. And where was R.T.? Going up to houses and Hello, I'm R.T. Kendall. I've come to show you something new and different for your home. Selling vacuum cleaners for a living. People would come up to my dad and said, Mr. Kendall, how's your son R.T. doing? Oh, R.T., well, he sells vacuum cleaners. No, what's R.T. doing? He sells vacuum cleaners. Didn't hear you. How's R.T.? He sells vacuum cleaners for a living. My dad was so humiliated and hurt and not very proud of me. And how do you think I felt? I had nothing I could show him to make him feel better about me. There's nothing more painful than being unvindicated when you are longing for them to see that you haven't lost your head. You have got it right. God is going to use you. And maybe you're like that today. You long for someone very close to you, very precious to you, to see that you've got it right and you live for that. But part of the pain, they don't understand. Underestimate you. Do you know, in my case... (laughs) It would be 22 years. One day, on a train from Edinburgh to King's Cross, when I was minister of Westminster Chapel, my dad looked at me and said, Son, I'm proud of you. I got it wrong. God's hand has been on you all the time. But I had to wait 22 years for that. Why couldn't I have known that before? That's part of my preparation. When God withholds vindication, it's not because he's angry with you. He's not upset with you. He's not trying to punish you. He knows what we need, that we might learn to get our vindication from him. When you read in 1 Timothy 3.16, that Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. What that means is that Jesus did not get his vindication from people. He didn't get his approval from anybody around him. He lived for one thing, for the Father to say, that's good. His Holy Spirit witnessed, that's good. That's what Jesus lived for. You never see Jesus going up to the disciples uh, right after the Sermon on the Mount. 
He just preached. He says, come here, guys. How'd I do today? That was pretty good, wasn't it? Did you like that part about blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth? Wasn't that good? Do you think Jesus ever looked to his disciples for approval or to get them to say, that was great preaching, love that parable? Or even after Jesus was raised from the dead, did you ever wonder why he didn't go up to the house of Pontius Pilate on Easter morning and knock on the door and say, surprise? <laughs> no. Jesus did not live for their approval. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And this is part of our preparation. We want them to say, you're great. We want them to say, I'm proud of you. But God says, nope, I don't want you to hear that. I want you to know I'm proud of you. That's my opinion. Will I do? Does my opinion matter? And this is one of the things we learn. That verse that I've sought, not always successfully, but I have sought to be governed by is John 5, 44. How can you believe who receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? The part of his preparation also is this. Not only underestimated by his parents or his brothers, but by the established leadership, David goes up to King Saul and says, look, let me have a go at Goliath. Now, David was a man of very small stature. All Israeli legends about David is he was, he was a small man. And here he goes up to King Saul and says, let me take care of Goliath. And King Saul says, you can't do that. You're not able to go out against this Philistine. You're only a boy. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. So the established leadership said, sorry, David, you're not able to do it. Did you know some of the greatest preachers in history were underestimated by the established leadership? Charles Spurgeon was rejected by Regent's Park College, which has now moved to Oxford. It's a skeleton in their cupboard. They don't like to think about the fact that they rejected Spurgeon. The Methodist Church rejected G. Camel Morgan, the man that gave Westminster Chapel its international reputation. They said G. Camel Morgan does not have the makings of a preacher. And perhaps you have a gift, and those who could affirm you and advance you and promote you could do it just like that, but they don't see it. And it hurts. However, in this case, David didn't give up. And Finally, King Saul says, all right. I guess King Saul realized he's got nothing to lose. Let the boy have a go. But then, once King Saul agrees to let David have a go at Goliath, they do what they thought was the right thing. King Saul takes his armor off and puts it on little David. Now, King Saul was a big man. We know that from the account when Samuel found him. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. <laughs> David's a small man, 
And now imagine Saul taking his helmet off, all of his armor, and he puts it on little David. And now David is walking around like this. And he says, I can't go in these. And so part of David's preparation was learning to be himself. I was with Jeff Lucas the other day, preaching with him in Northern Ireland. And he asked me, what would I do different if I could start all over again at Westminster Chapel? And uh, I said, well, the first thing, I would spend more time with my family. I'll talk about that later in the week. But I said, I think my biggest lesson, and I'm not sure I ever completely learned it, but I worked at it, was to learn to be myself. It was the hardest thing in the world, just to be myself. You say, well, why will you have trouble being yourself? I was scared to death that if I were really myself, that you Brits wouldn't like me. And at Westminster Chapel, which has been historically a middle-class English church, I thought, if they really get to find out what I'm like, I am from the hills of Kentucky. You know, I grew up in Kentucky when there were only 48 states. And in those days, we had a slogan in Kentucky, which was, thank God for Arkansas. Kentucky was 47th in educational standards. Thank God for Arkansas. <laughs> That's my background. Here I am at Westminster Chapel, and I was trying to fit the part. The hardest thing in the world, maybe for you, is just to be yourself. And maybe there are those that are putting Saul's armor on you, and you say, this is not me. Oh, well, you dare not face Goliath without armor. You need this. And David had to learn to be himself. Is that you? Are you trying to do what another person does? Are you trying to mimic them? You're trying to imitate their gift? You know, it's a funny thing. Whenever we imitate another person, we never capture their genius. We'll always pick up some eccentric habit they have. We, we won't pick what, what is their real genius. We'll look stupid when we try to be someone else. There was this man in Texas years ago who, when he would preach and the anointing would appear to be on him, nobody knew why he did it, his left hand would come up over his ear like this. And he'd keep on preaching. Nobody knew why he did it, but that was just part of the way he was. You do that very well. They made that man professor of preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. You could always tell one of his students. 
Those young fellows going all over Texas and Oklahoma about the time they thought they were ringing the bell, that left hand would have come up over there. There are Southern Baptist preachers to this day that do that. Now, I told that story at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, and it worked. An old professor came out of the gallery after the service. He said, I know exactly who you're talking about. I said, tell me about him. He told me his name. And I said, well, now, why did he put his left hand over his ear? He said, he was hard of hearing. <laughs> that's all. He could hear himself better. Than they, that's why he did it. Everybody else thought it was the anointing. <laughs> Dr. Lloyd-Jones told me about this man in Wales years ago who had an eccentric habit as he would preach hair would get down in his eyes and instead of taking his hand to push it back the man would just shake his head like that and it was just part of his trademark as he preached he would shake it Dr. Lloyd Jones says sure enough there were young preachers all over Wales as they would preach they would shake that head and he said one of them was actually bald headed and he too would shake the head God made you just like you are and he wants you to stop trying to be what others are and affirm the way he made you. And so it was a stroke of genius that David said, I can't go in these, but I know what I can do. And he picked five smooth stones from a brook he only needed one of them, and he killed Goliath, just like that. He lived within the measure of his anointing. Last point I will make in this connection is that part of your preparation is unwittingly making other people jealous. I'm writing a book now, be out in a year or two, on the sin no one talks about, jealousy. And here's what happened. After David killed Goliath, we read, they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Oh dear. Saul heard that. He was angry. This refrain galled him. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And the honeymoon for David was over. David would spend the next 20 years running from King Saul. King Saul was more threatened by David than he was the Philistines, the enemy of Israel. This is what happens when a person gets obsessed with jealousy. They will think about one person and it will be your downfall. Be very, very careful if you become obsessed with one person that's becoming a threat to you. This is partly what made King Saul the evil man he turned out to be. And so killing Goliath, you could say, was the best thing that ever happened to David you could equally say it was the worst thing that ever happened to David. 
The greatest opposition to what God is doing today often comes from those who are in the forefront of what God did yesterday. And King Saul is now yesterday's man. And he's going to do everything he can to destroy the wave of the future. And as surely as I speak to you, and you're tomorrow's man, you're tomorrow's woman, you have a target on your back, and Satan is aiming for you, and he will do everything he can to demoralize you, to destroy you, to bring you down. But let me remind you, David wasn't ready to be king. He would still need 20 years of preparation. And one of the strangest verses in the Bible, I don't get it, where even Jesus, though he was a son, was made perfect through suffering. Deal with that one. Charles Spurgeon once said, if I knew I had 25 years left to live, I'd spend 20 of it in preparation. Well, now what was it David needed to learn? What is it you need to learn? Well, almost certainly you don't know. You would not know what it is that you need to learn. You may speculate. You may guess. You may say, I think I need this or I need that. You might be right. You may not be right. Chances are what you really need, only God understands, and he puts you through tests that make no sense at the time. I could give you a long list of things David would need over the next 20 years. And I could take several mornings on this alone. For example, he would need to learn gratitude. Learning to be thankful for every little thing. He would need to learn the meaning of mercy. How that when God gives mercy, he could give mercy or withhold it and be just either way. There's a long list of things David would need to learn. But I feel, as I've thought about the morning, the way to spend the rest of our time is to focus on this verse that you find in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's verse 5. And David was now learning something that maybe you also need to learn. In his case, it was put like this. He cut off a corner of King Saul's robe. We read that in verse 4. Here's what happened. He was running from David. Uh, he was running from Saul. Saul was looking high and low all over the desert, the Judean desert, around the Dead Sea, En Gedi, anywhere he could find David. But one day, David's men found Saul instead. And they come to David and say, David, this is the day you've been waiting for. Glory to God. Vindication has come. You can destroy your enemy and you'll be king before sundown. Well, David says, I'm not going to do that, but let's have some fun. Let's, let's have some fun. And so we're told that while King Saul was in a deep sleep, David crept up unnoticed 
and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Well done, David. I like your style. Good. Who here would have thought there was anything wrong with that? Do you know, verse 5 says, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I'm sure his men said, David, don't be silly. You let something like that bother you? Oh, David said, I shouldn't have done that. I should not have done that. David was now developing a sensitivity to God's ways. A sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And David was learning something that maybe you need. You tell me. Some years ago, I wrote a book called Sensitivity of the Spirit. If I were to say to you that my chief insight at Westminster Chapel for 25 years was this. You may be surprised that I would say it. But it is this. Midway during my 25-year period, I saw something I had never seen before. And I spent years researching it and developing it. And that is an aspect of the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He's not only a person, but I discovered he is a very, very, very sensitive person. Turn in your Bible to two passages, please. First, to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 32. And here we have the account how John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Then John the Baptist gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. That's Jesus. He adds, I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm sure all of you know this, that the Holy Spirit is depicted as a dove in the New Testament. It's not the only way he's depicted. He's depicted as fire, wind, oil, but here, the dove. Why dove? Well, for one thing, the dove is a very shy bird, very sensitive bird. Pigeons and doves are in the same family. I remember when we first came to England, and we came from Oxford into London, and we went to Trafalgar Square, I have a picture of our son when he was only six years old with four pigeons on each arm and two on his head. He thought he'd gone to heaven. <laughs> pigeons will do that. You just sprinkle bird seed and the pigeons will come all over you. You could not get a dove to come near Trafalgar Square. 
Pigeons and doves, same family, different personalities. You can train a pigeon. You can't train a dove. Pigeons are boisterous. Doves are gentle. Pigeons you can tame. Doves are wild birds. Pigeons are belligerent. Doves are peaceful. I could go on and on. The dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The pigeon is a symbol of the counterfeit spirit. And some people don't know the difference. I hear of churches where they say, you should have been in our service Sunday. The Holy Ghost came. And you get to the bottom of it, you find out it was pigeon religion. <laughs> when the authentic, true Holy Spirit comes into the service, it is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I know what it is for the Holy Spirit to come down. And I'm sure you know what it is like when the Holy Spirit comes down. But how many of you noticed that word remain? John said, I knew he was the Messiah because I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. You see, here's what happens with me. The dove comes down, but he doesn't remain. He flies away. When he comes down, there is nothing like it in this world. The peace, the joy. God is so real. You say, Lord, I'll never doubt you again after this moment. I'm so ashamed that I ever doubted you. And you find yourself saying, don't leave. Don't leave. Please stay. Please stay. The time goes on. Before the day is over, you realize something happened. It's not like it was. The dove just flew away. At the risk of being misunderstood, I have to tell you something. Easiest thing in the world to do is to grieve the Holy Spirit. Turn now to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And the Apostle Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The word grieve comes from a Greek word that means get your feelings hurt. In other words, don't hurt the Holy Spirit's feelings. Now here's what happens. When we grieve the Holy Spirit, we don't lose our salvation. Because Paul says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Nothing can be clearer than that. But what happens when you do grieve the Spirit? Well, I can tell you, it's like the dove flies away. What happens is this. You lose the sense of His presence. The anointing. Presence of mind, the peace, clear thinking. When the dove comes down, 
You read the Bible, it's like gold letters leaping out at you. You see things you've never seen before. You want to stay there for hours. But when the dove flies away, you look at the same Bible and you stare at the same word for 30 minutes. You can't seem to get anywhere. You think, Lord, why isn't it like it was? This is because the Holy Spirit is so sensitive. I actually wanted to call my book The Hypersensitivity of the Spirit, but the publisher talked me out of that title that said people won't understand what you mean by that, and I agree. But that's the point. The Holy Spirit is so sensitive. Now, when we speak of another person as being sensitive, hypersensitive, it's, it's not a compliment. Not a compliment. Be careful around that person. They get their feelings hurt very easily. Not a compliment. Like it or not, that's the way the Holy Spirit is. He gets his feelings hurt so easily. And if you ask what hurts his feelings, I'm going to tell you the very next verse. Having just said, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed from the day of redemption, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In other words, when I am bitter, the dove flies away. When I lose my temper, the dove flies away. It can happen in traffic when the person in front of me is going so slow and I honk my horn and I say, what's the matter with you up there? Dove flies away. I can be in a supermarket and the person in front of me so slow counting their change and I go, they heard me, I wanted them to, but so did the dove and he just flew away. Whenever I speak curtly to my wife, Dove flies away. When I hold a grudge over this happening, dove flies away. I'm sorry, that's the way he is. You say, well, he ought not be like that. Get over it. It's the only Holy Spirit you've got. He will not adjust to you. You've got to adjust to him. And the thing I've learned, the most painful lesson I learned in this connection is that the Holy Spirit won't bend the rules for any of us. I don't care who you are, how important you may be in the church, how long you've been in the kingdom, how long you've been saved, He won't bend the rules for any of us. I would define spirituality as Closing the time gap between sin and repentance. In other words, how long does it take you to admit you sinned? How long does it take you to admit you were wrong? For some, it takes years, wide gap. And they say, I will never admit I was wrong. And they stick to their guns. They don't. But then some, after a few years, say, well, sorry about that. I was wrong. But it took them years For some, they narrow the time gap to a few months and then they cool off and say sorry. Some narrow the time gap to a few weeks 
some to a few days. That's better. Some to a few hours, still better. Some to a few minutes. And some narrow the time gap to a few seconds. And if you can narrow the time gap to a few seconds, you're beginning to know his ways. You can almost tell when you're about to grieve the Spirit. I know what it's like as I'm speaking. I think if I finish this sentence, the dove will fly away. I can almost feel the wings flapping. And I stop. I don't want there to be any discontinuity in my relationship with the ungrieved spirit. He won't bend the rules for any of us. A story some of you will have heard. A British couple were sent by their denomination to a uh, place in Israel to be missionaries in Israel. And they were given a home in which to live near Jerusalem. But they noticed a few weeks after they moved into their house that a dove had come to live on the eve of the roof of their house. And they were so excited. It was like a seal of God on their being in Israel. But they noticed that every time they would slam a door the dove would fly away. Every time they would get into an argument with each other and start shouting, the dove would fly away. And one day, Sandy said to Bernice, have you noticed the dove? Oh, yes. How do you feel about the dove? He said to her, well, it's like a seal of God in our being in Israel. But have you noticed that every time we slam a door, the dove flies away. Every time we get into an argument, the dove flies away And she said, yes, and I'm so afraid that the dove will fly away and not come back. He looked at her and says, we want the dove to stay, don't we? Oh, yes. And then with these words, which he told all over Britain, either the dove adjusts to us or we adjust to the dove. Change their lives, never to be the same again, just to keep the dove near. The Holy Spirit is a thousand times more sensitive than that. This is just the way He is. God lamented of ancient Israel, Hebrews 3, verse 10, they have not known my ways. You can almost hear the tear in God's voice. They have not known my ways. You may not like his ways, but this is the way he is. Many people pray that the fire will fall, and so do I. But maybe we need to pray that the dove will come down. And the dove comes down in proportion to our being like Jesus, because with Jesus, it says the dove came down and remained on him, never left. Jesus never grieved the Holy Spirit, ever. The dove came down and remained. That shows you a lot about Jesus. The Holy Spirit was at home there. And so when young David, running from Saul, had a chance to cut off a piece of Saul's robe, 
He felt horrible. Ah, God was teaching him the ways of the Spirit. And when you realize how sensitive the Holy Spirit is, you watch what you say. I close. When I was at Westminster Chapel, I would start my Sunday morning sermon preparation on Monday morning. But one week, I never will forget it, I was busy preaching all over Britain. And I didn't get a chance to study at all. Didn't even crack a book. It was now Saturday morning. I was not ready for Sunday. I hadn't even started. I said, Lord, please help me overrule. Let me get through this day. Let there be no interruptions. Make up for the lost time, please. At nine o'clock that morning, Louise and I got into an argument. In Kentucky, we would call it a dandy. She was horrible. <laughs> I slammed the door, went to my room, opened my Bible. Lord, give me something now for tomorrow. Jesus, help me. Deal with that woman. <laughs> 11 o'clock, nothing came. Blank sheet of paper. Lord, please help me. Please, 12 o'clock, nothing. Jesus, please. 1 o'clock, nothing. 2 o'clock, Lord, what I say tomorrow is going to be tape recorded. It's going to go around the world. You've got to help me. It's like I heard a voice faintly from heaven that said, really? <laughs> Three o'clock, nothing. Four o'clock. It had crossed my mind <laughs> to do what I did at four o'clock. Seven hours, time gap. I went into the kitchen. There she was, tearful. I said, I'm sorry. It was all my fault. Well, it wasn't all your fault. It was partly my fault. No, it was all my fault. And I am so sorry. We hugged. We kissed. I went back to the same room, same chair, same blank sheet of paper, and I promise you, in 45 minutes, I had everything I needed for Sunday. Why? The dove came down. You can accomplish more in five minutes when the dove comes down than you can in five years and all are struggling outside our anointing. The man, the woman after God's own heart. You have to learn his ways. But your time will come. And when it comes, it will be worth waiting for. May we pray. Heavenly Father, take this word. I ask you and apply it by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.